welcome to episode 11 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. We're going to have a special episode today where we talk not necessarily about the games of the NBA, but the way the NBA is going from an analytics and statistical point of view, uh, which has fascinated both Darren and I for the last few seasons, uh, if not longer. But I wanted to start, Darren, by first talking about some of the games we've seen on the weekend, and I feel like this is really the dog days of the NBA because I've tried to watch a few games in the last few days and it is very, very difficult viewing, very, very hard sledding because you've got all these teams tanking that don't really care about winning. You've got a number of teams that are either locked into seeds or don't really care about their seeding, so they're resting guys or they're just not... They're trying things out maybe for the playoffs and things like that. And you've got this sort of you know, small group of teams, I guess, either fighting to get into the playoffs or fighting to hold on to seeding. So they're the teams that are playing a bit more competitively at the moment. I've seen, you know, Portland played very well. I watched them against the Spurs the other day, uh, but the Spurs haven't played very well. Houston haven't played really well the last few games. I mean, what have you made of the last few games you might have seen over the uh, the past week or so since we last spoke? Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, what I've, I'm pleased to what, maybe not, not the first to mention it, but when I dug into the Miami Heat just to see them keep on keeping on, you know, they lost a tough game without um, Drogic when he had his eyes swollen. <laughs> Looked like he'd been allergic to, a, you know, some sort of something. But uh, the Heat keep rolling on. They're up to the seventh seed, so they've done exactly what we thought they would do. Um, we see a bunch of just a bunch of not interesting basketball in the Eastern Conference the last week. I'll be honest, as the team I think I've I'm officially declaring dead. The team I thought just had every single chance to be into the playoffs, and they have good players and a good team and a good roster, and that's Charlotte. They just don't ever seem to get over the hump. So I've declared them dead. They're dead to me. Um, and the so nothing in the East really interested me other than seeing Miami sort of keep on, keeping on, and perhaps if we had more time, we want to be, just get depressed, we can talk about the Atlanta Hawks. Um, but that's probably enough airtime to deserve as they're, they're in sort of a free fall at the moment. Um, and their, their point differential also doesn't look like they should be the five seed either. So I think we could see some turd-like movement out of the Hawks the next couple of weeks. Yeah, they've been really poor. They were they were smashed by Portland uh, today. Um, Charlotte actually beat Washington this morning. That was one game I did watch. Was not a good game of basketball. I don't know what's happened to Washington uh, the last few weeks. They seem to have either maybe the pressure and all the talk of yeah. being a one seed or a two seeds gotten to them a bit. They've certainly fallen right off. Um, and Charlotte played okay, but it was just it was just a lack of intensity. Um, although I do find yeah. amusing at March Madness. I don't know if you you um, notice this as well, but guys that were really good in college but never, have never quite been quite as good in the NBA seem to rise and play that little bit better in March. Like I saw Frank Kaminsky had a good game today. Cody Zeller had maybe his best game of the season. Certainly a really nice game. Um, Kid Gilchrist had a good game. And you just see these guys rise up and you think, oh, I, remember, I do remember that guy having a few moments in March Madness uh, in college <laughs> a few years ago. So maybe it inspires them a little bit. But the rest of the NBA seem like they're just sleepwalking. Um, and then, of course, you had LeBron, who a week removed from saying, uh, I'll rest and I'll retire. Uh, he's had two rest games in the last two last week, so 
uh, just yeah. another one to add to the biggest tool in the NBA and the evidence behind that. <laughs> so, but look, I didn't want to talk so much uh, this evening about uh, the games because, as I said, I don't, I don't think there's been a lot of interest there. Well, there's certainly there's some teams we can it, talk about. Well, I just want to say, just to close it out, that was my run through the East because I'd spent a lot of time with them last week. And it was Atlanta dropping like a rock and Miami keeping on, keeping on. And the Bucks are on this road trip out west. So I've been watching the west quite a lot. So I've seen, as you, you did as well, I saw Portland a couple times and Memphis a couple times and the Clippers a couple times. So just what's getting more interesting than it was, I'd say, certainly um, two weeks ago, um, is this race now in the West is getting really, really interesting between what looks like a sure thing. Like It looked like these seedings were set a month ago. I think you and I have talked about this quite a lot where it looked like a foregone conclusion. The Jazz and the Clippers would be 4-5, or five and it'd be just a little bit interesting what can happen with Russ um, and the Thunder versus the Grizz, and then who gets the eight seed. But suddenly what we've got is OKC and Memphis has gone on a tear. And I've seen Memphis play twice. They Obviously, they ripped the Spurs. They killed the Bucks. They killed the Bulls. They just suddenly figured it out. Um, but at the same time, so has um, so have the Thunder. Had a couple of nice victories. And at this, and the Clips, the Clips got um, they got some treatment by the Bucks. Bucks won a one point game out in, in L.A. So um, that's what's getting really interesting to me. Um, is we're genuinely now talking. The Grizzlies are only a game out of the five spot. And so the, the question starts to become, can the Clippers hold on to the five? Can Russ and OKC, who've got a pretty road-heavy schedule, albeit a bit of a soft schedule, can they catch the Clippers and move up into five? And the Grizz, can they keep this up? Because we've seen some swings and roundabouts from the Grizz before, you know, with um, ups and downs of their season. So yeah, that's I'll, got I'll really... Yeah, i say on that. I mean, originally, I think I had them OKC okay, seven... Memphis 6, uh, Clippers 5. I've now got it Clippers 5, OKC 6, Memphis 7. I could see Memphis and OKC swapping around. I think we spoke about it today. LA have got a very easy schedule from here on in. Um, I think strength your schedule, they were one of the better teams heading back, heading into the rest of the season. So I, can, I think they will steady. I think they'll hold on to that 5 spot and meet Utah in the first round of the playoffs. Uh, with Memphis, I'm a little bit of a non-believer in them just at the moment. Uh, we saw what, some of them wins have just been like when they beat the the Bucks. What uh, Vince Carter scored 24 points today. We had Zach Randolph winding the clock back. Um, their backup point guard came on and hit a few shots. Uh, look, it was a good win. Always a good win against the Spurs. Don't get me wrong on that. But I just I, I think they're doing things that are not necessarily sustainable across a 20-game run, which is what they're going to need to produce. Um, so I can see still a little bit of inconsistency there for Memphis. And I like what OKC, finally, they're starting to play. This is the sort of basketball we expected them to play when they made the trades for McDermott and, and Taj Gibson. Uh, for whatever reason, just after that, Russ Westbrook went on a tear and started scoring heavily, but that didn't translate to victories. Um, since then, he's sort of he's only I think he's only been putting up twenty point games since that Spurs game. He hasn't scored over thirty in any of, them, any of those games, and they haven't lost any of those games. He's putting up really strong stat lines. He's getting everyone else involved. Um, Gibson's contributing. McDermott's contributing. 
it's just a real t- and uh, Oladipo's playing better. The teammates are involved. They just look like a scary team all of a sudden. And if I'm Houston, I'm not sure I want any part of uh, of OKC because particularly if OKC continue playing at this level and they're playing for something. And I always think it's a bit of a risk when you're locked into that seed and you just coast through that last few weeks of the season and then all of a sudden you're expected to ramp it up in the postseason. And not to get too hung up on Houston again, but I was thinking about them today and I'm thinking, you know, you're asking Eric Gordon, Ryan Anderson, Lou Williams, Patrick Beverly, these guys to hit big shots in big games and they've never been there before and they've never done it before. And that always worries me from a point of view of when you get to the playoffs, there's just that little bit extra pressure. If you're sitting there saying, yeah, we need this guy to shoot 40% from three, it may, you, know, you can't necessarily pencil it in that that's definitely going to happen. So I think if they play OKC in first round, that's going to be a, a fantastic series. But I like what OKC are doing right at the moment. Which is to imply A, Abrinas, J, Hustis, V, Aladipo, and whomever else are there. J, Laverne. These are, oh, he's actually been shipped out, hasn't he? But you know, look, OKC is not exactly the most weathered group of guys oh, either. Not, but I, don't, I no. think the pressure is going to be all on Houston. <clears throat> and I think there's something to be said for that. And, and I was watching. Um, uh, yeah. I was watching Spurs Memphis today, actually. Uh, they had the. Remember when Spurs, Memphis knocked the Spurs off 1v8 in 2013? Or in 2012, actually. And you could just see in those games, all the pressure was on San Antonio. And it had guys on Memphis who had never been there before. Zach Randolph was a head case. All these sort of storylines. And they just played without pressure. And I just think, you know, there's pressure on both teams. It's the playoffs. I get it. But when when Houston have had Mm -hmm. such a good season and so high expectations, if OKC come in and one of them first two games punch them in the mouth and go back to to Oklahoma 1-1, uh, the, the pressure really amps up then. Look, I think that's a fair point. When you're playing Russell Westbrook, the pressure is going to be on you physically, emotionally, energetically, and the rest of it. So that's, I mean, that's what is the most, probably maybe it's the only fascinating thing I'm finding about Westbrook this year because I think we've talked about as well. I'm, I'm a bit tired of his game. But now, now I'm starting to go, okay, can this crazy man, can he keep this up and can he do something? Does he have the power to lift guys around him and to be that infectious, un, sort of un, not unstoppable, but just inexhaustible sort of force in the playoffs, which as you said, if, heaven forbid, Harden misses a shot or doesn't get a foul call, and that team does teeter because it relies so heavily on Harden, to say the least. Well, it's the old school um, mentality, too, of we've got one team that they're going to crash the boards, they're going to play solid defense, they're going to get a lot of their points closer to the basket, more old school basketball in some ways. I mean, obviously, the way Westbrook plays is not necessarily that way. But then you've got the other team that's relying on guys hitting three point shots. And the old school mentality, this is why Charles Barkley said the jump shooting team can't win it, is when you're in the playoffs, when you're expected to shoot threes, you can get a bit tight and it gets a bit harder. You know, and it's a lot easier for Ennis Kander to put the ball in the bucket when he's getting it two feet from the hoop than it is for Eric Gordon. 
So that's the theory. I'm not, I'm not saying I subscribe to that theory or not, but that's, that's sort of the theory of where it's going to potentially get tough for Houston. And, you know, if a guy like Eric Gordon comes in and goes one for ten in his first game, or, you know, first game in a quarter, uh, he, there's going to be th- there'll be thoughts running around his head and he's going to get inside his own head. Maybe. Um, and who knows? I think that could turn into a very tough series very, very quickly for Houston. Having said that, look, they could go in the first two games, uh, win by 20, go back 2-0 and, and do it easily. I think neither of us can predict it, but the volatility, what I'm hearing, it's the volatility and the unpredictability is perhaps the interesting part. When I think about when the, what jumped to mind when you said that was, um, do you know who led when the when the Mavericks they knocked off the the Heat trio and they won their only title? Do you know who led the Mavericks in three point shooting um, in the NBA Finals? Oh, look! Your first guess would be Jason Terry, but I've got a feeling didn't Jason Kidd shoot ridiculous threes in that he, series? He he did. Yep. Your first two guesses would be Terry and Kidd, and you'd be wrong. Yeah. Your third guess would be Dirk, and that would also be wrong. It's Deshaun Stevenson. Oh, he went something like thir- yeah, yep. He went something like thirteen for twenty-four, or something you know, something around fifteen percent, right? Not huge, not high volume. We haven't gotten there, but um, I guess it, it, I've not really examined this point. That's just anecdotal, but predicting where the tightness comes from, I think you're probably right. Easier for Cantor to still get his twenty and twelve in twenty minutes than it would be for, for Gordon to get his 20 points. That I would, I would tend to agree with that. So more, more predictable performance. But, um, yeah, in small sample sets, it's just going to be about matchups. But I think we're, di- we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole, um, which, is, yes. which, we're, look, which we're known to do. The Russ, only, the only Russ and Harden, yeah, they sorry, drag sorry. us in this rabbit hole. No, <laughs> they're, they're, they're addictive. God damn it. Just try not to talk about Harden and Westbrook. Can't do it. Well, it's the big storyline of the season. I mean, I think this MVP race is the storyline of the season. When you look back on this regular season, I think that's we're going to look back on some of the trades that were made, and no doubt we're going to have. And I want to talk about one of those trades in a second. We're going yeah. to have some some opinions on those trades, and um, we're also going to look back at one of the most fascinating MVP races. And I remember years where we've had four or five guys we've been talking about for MVP, but there have been more years where there hasn't been a standout player. Whereas this year you've got four guys, and if Durant didn't get injured, you would have had five guys. And I saw someone make a case for Steph Curry the other day, but I thought that was drawing a long bow. Um, You could have had five guys that are playing at the absolute peak of their powers. And I don't think there's a wrong choice. It's just someone said the other day, and I actually agree with this when you look at this MVP race, it actually says how you view basketball. There's no right or wrong answer about it. It's just what do you value as a basketball fan or a basketball analyst, and that's what, what will dictate who you vote for. So if you, if you just want to vote for the best player in the game, you're going to vote for LeBron. If you want to vote for the best two-way player, Kawhi. You want to respect the triple-doubles, then you got Westbrook. You want to respect the guy that's leading the league in points and assists and is the best offensive player in the league, without a doubt, you go with Harden. So there's no wrong answer to that, I don't think. Um, it's just a matter of what, what you value and what your opinions are um, as a basketball fan. Would you would you go on with that? For the most part, it's the 
there's the old um, just talking about analytics for a minute. It's it's like when we started the you know Moneyball was written in whatever year that was, and baseball as being such a statistics driven sport where you can use this dominant metric in, in baseball called on base percentage that tells you so much that single stat, right? How many times does a player get on base is a hugely um, important stat, no matter the era, no matter the, the type of team, no matter the style of play, can you get on base or not? We don't have a stat like that. Is it real plus minus? Is it PER? Is it, you know, counting stats, you know, all these sorts of things and off on, etc. There's no, there is no, um, no analytical um, model or statistic that says this is the one or two dominant things that, you know, pretend it. So your eyes and your emotions have to, they have to play a part in it. So yeah, that's exactly. what I find. I don't yeah. think there's a perfect stat for basketball. I mean, we, and we brought this up, uh, brought this up with you earlier um, when we spoke before we come on air about Jan Mahimni. And we spoke about Jan Mahimni in one of our first ever pods. And I, and I was talking about how bad the, uh, the Washington Wizards bench was. And I said, well, look, some people are saying Jan Mahimni's the answer when he comes back. And I thought, if Jan Mahimni's the answer, what's the question? And you said, <laughs> I thought rather unfairly, well, you said, who's that guy over there that took my sandwich? That's the only yeah. time there's yeah. a question where Jan Mahimni... But I've got the question. The question is, who has the best ever plus minus... For a game decided by 10 points or less. And the answer is Jan Mahimni. Now, I haven't confirmed that, but I can't believe a player would ever put up a better plus minus than a game that you and I were both following at the same time, which was the Suns-Wizards game. And there was one point in the game where the Wizards were up by four and Jan Mahimni's plus minus was plus 44. No, minus, minus. No, no, no. Gortat was minus. Mahim, Gortat was oh. minus 36, and oh, Mahimni right. Sorry. was plus went the other way. 44. That's and right. then the Suns went on an eight-day run, and it ended up being plus 36. And they won the game, I think, by eight, seven or eight. And I remember saying to you, what's, what's the record for plus minus? And I think you said Joe Smith was the record that was plus 52. Um, but that was a game they won by 47. This was yes. a close game. And Jan Mahimni got <laughs> plus 36. Like, that just is mind-boggling. But to me, that says you can probably just throw that stat out, really, because I, I love that stat game to game. I particularly love looking at the Bucks because I can look at it and Delhi's minus 19 and Brogdon's plus 18, and I can remind everyone that, uh, that I didn't ever like yeah, Delhi in the first it, place. But it, 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 is, it really doesn't tell you anything. It is really helpful... <laughs> To put into concrete your own confirmation <laughs> exactly. bias. <laughs> exactly. If you want to prove something, it's just like, ah, oh, that guy, you know. I mean, look, occasionally you can see it when, when you have the games where Russ Westbrook, I, I think I gave the example, against the Spurs, he was plus six when he was on the floor and they were minus 21 when he was off the floor. Yeah. Things like that. But I, I think where I, plus minus and, and per 100 possession uh, stats, where I get interested in the stats is the five-man units that they look at. Um, from the, in the three man, in the three yeah. man units and things like that. But sorry, what were you going to say? Before? No, I was just, I've developed my own when I, um, my own sort of vernacular for real plus minus. I'm calling it. It's a Sherlock stat, as in no shit Sherlock, <laughs> as in oh really? 
the Cleveland Cavaliers are worse when LeBron sits down? Oh, gosh. Really? When Giannis sits down and uh, Mirza Toledovic comes in, their defense suffers? Fucking hadn't thought of that. Like, so for me, real plus minus is, uh, yeah, no. I'm sounding Australian now. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you're right. I mean, look, I I think obviously there's plays apart within some of these and, and I can guarantee you the Spurs have got a lineup that they're going to turn to once LeBron's off, off the floor. And, they, and you assume that Kawhi's probably off the floor at the same time. So yeah. they're looking at, okay, okay, this is, this is a five-minute period. We have to win the game. You know, we have to win this five-minute period and probably win it well because when their starting fives against their starting five, maybe we're not going, you know, we, if, we, if we play that to a draw that's going to be pretty good for us. So you look at a team that, that does rely on their depth like the Spurs, and they're certainly going to be looking at those things. But like you say, no shit, Sherlock. When when LeBron's off the court, you need to make hay while the sun shines. Um, yeah. That's that's not fooling anyone. But that's where I think I'm more of a... I don't look at stats that much. I'm not one of these guys that gets online and scrolls through the stats to see all different things. I'd rather watch the games and sort of have things that I'll look at and say, okay, I can see this guy's improving, or I can see this guy's one of the top players. I mean, I read a defensive stat the other day, and I couldn't see Kawhi Leonard's name. He wasn't even in the top 20. And I thought, if you've got a defensive stat and Kawhi Leonard's not in the top 20 of it, and they were, someone was using it to justify Rudy Gobert for Defensive Player of the Year, and I thought, if you've got a defensive stat and Kawhi Leonard's not in the top 20, there's a problem with that stat. Just get rid of it. Throw it out. You yeah. can't use it to justify anything. So <clears throat> I can't remember off the top of my head, apologies for the, what the stat was, but I think there are stats like that where people, like you say, it's confirmation bias where you want to say, we want to prove that this guy who I like is the best defender in the league or these guys are defending better than we think. And I see it for James Harden. I mean, they're trying to justify James Harden's defence. I'm sorry. I watch enough basketball to tell you right now he does not care about defence. He will never care about defence. So don't try and throw stats at me to say, oh, James Harden's actually improved. He has not improved one bit, um, in my opinion. Now, well, statistic right. people can have the argument with me, but I would I would stick to that opinion. And and this is where we look at the what the entire game is about today. It's about dunks, open corner threes, Free throw percentage or free throws, and then and then preventing those three things from happening and who on the was defensive the first side. Team to realise the value of the open corner three, Darren. Was that the Spurs? Of course, it was the Spurs. Of course, it was. Well, because fucking Bruce Bowen, I'm like, who's this <laughs> asshole? He's supposed to be a defender. Why is he always open? Oh, he's open because no one cares about him. And all of a sudden, he's got yeah. So I remember Bruce Bowen. That's how I remember the open corner three, but um, but just back to the MVP conversation and I guess marrying it with analytics. Where I'm gonna, uh, I'm just gonna call the people who think that offense is the only conversation or is they're gonna win the conversation. It's just flat lazy. It's just flat lazy. So to put Harden and Curry, you know, they are singularly brilliant on the offensive side of the ball. No one's going to argue that. But then you go, guys like Gobert or a Giannis or a Draymond Green are almost 
singularly unique at preventing shots from happening when they're defensive, both on ball and support help. They're ridiculous on that side. They both got, you know, offensive skills. Um, Giannis is getting there. But then when you look at the combination of dunks, three-pointers, and free throws and preventing them, your conversation has to go down to LeBron Kawhi. And if he had stayed healthy, fucking Kevin Durant was playing some defense this mm, year. No doubt. So that's kind of where I go. It's just It feels just a bit lazy um, unless you're so singularly outlier the way Steph Curry was last year, right? When the, the NBA record was his own record, what, 286 three-pointers, and he goes and makes 400. Yeah, look, and I go, he okay, was so I go, good offensively. And that he is played something for the best defensive team in the league, in so the, he wasn't playing zero defense either. Well, he was playing within how the defense was arranged, which is to make him play no defense. Right, let's be honest, right? Um, Clay and Draymond were doing all the perimeter work with Iggy, etc. But that's a different conversation. It just My point is, if you're not singularly, freakishly, historically brilliant at your one dimension, i.e., and when some could argue, Harden is in his efficiency this year on the offensive side, I just, the argument falls with Russ because he's so wickedly inefficient. Unless you're something freakish like that, how do you not look at guys who also prevent, you know, prevent the ball from going into the basket? Yeah, but if you look at the efficiency stats too, Westbrook's not marked down in efficiency stats. So again, I, I think there's a flaw in statistics there because I look at the and because I, I went through it and I was I was comparing Kawhi and um, and Harden and Westbrook in particular, and Westbrook's efficiency was up there, and I thought I can't understand how a guy with that many turnovers that doesn't shoot a great percentage could be ranked as one of the more efficient players um, in the NBA. And then I also saw um, we've been doing that. His effective field goal percentage is seven points beneath Harden's full period, full stop, end of go. He's shooting 42% and 33% from three and turns the ball over. I mean, that is, that's inefficient, right? Harden's effective field goal percentage is seven points higher. So unless Russ is making up some ridiculous amount on the defensive side of the ball, and he's made up, he makes a fair bit. That's where I go. It just doesn't feel like an argument to me. I go, it's people actually aren't watching the games then, because James Harden is he's, every. It seems like every step he takes is 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 orchestrated and almost perfect. It's it is, and I'm I was a huge Harden hater. I found Houston basketball, especially in the Dwight era with Harden unwatchable cringeworthy cringeworthy unwatchable and i can't believe i've been converted as to watching harden play and i go oh my god he just gets anywhere he wants whenever he wants and everyone's moving in concert around him it's like a little it's not quite 2014 spurs symphony but it is it is it's wonderful Oh, it is on the, on the offensive end, on um, the offensive side, and so, yeah. So, the, the, so I'm just, I'm just the biggest band of smashing the drum. If if anyone votes Russ Westbrook any any higher than number five in the MVP voting, you're not watching the games and you're being lazy. Oh, 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 the only thing I'd say about that is let's watch these last twenty games and let's see how he finishes the season off because I've been impressed with what he's done the last week or so. I think it'll get the better of him and he'll try and 
be scoring more. But I think he's a guy that should be taking... If he's taking more than 20 shots a game, that's 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 bad for the Thunder. He needs to be taking between, what, what 15 to 20 at most. Um, yeah. He reminds me a little bit of Kobe when Kobe was getting towards the end of his career and not as efficient a shooter, a scorer. And you used to look at games and Kobe be shooting the ball 30 times. You think there's no way they're going to win that game when he's shooting that. But to the point I was making earlier, his uh, Westbrook's player efficiency rating is 30.4. James Harden's is 27.8. And Kawhi's is 28.2. So look by, by player efficiency rating, Westbrook is actually ahead of those other two guys. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So that's I guess. and then to be so that is a measure of the permanent production a, standardized, a, such that the league averages he, fifteen. But it's a permanent thing. He's a spaz. He's everywhere, right? He's a he's chaos. He is chaos personified. Harden and Kawhi play within a system of basketball where even if they're twenty eight feet away from the basketball, they're eight, they ain't fucking racing to chase a town the way Russ is. He's a maniac. Well, that's it. And so, that's right? that is saying he is the most efficient player in the NBA, and it could not be further from the truth. And that's where I think statistics can only take you so far. You've only got to watch a game of, of OKC, particularly in a game where he's going to try and score 40 points. And you understand very quickly, this guy's anything but efficient. He's a force of nature, yes. But as generally speaking, he is not an efficient basketball player. Um, and and you and to your point about effective field goal percentage, the turnovers, uh, things like that. Um, you know, he's averaging what five point four turnovers a game. Um, I don't see how that can be efficient. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, five, ten point, yeah, ten point three assists, of course. So he's averaging over ten uh, assists a game, but five point four uh, turnovers—that's that's uh, high. I, I think the the E in player efficiency rating is a bit over overstated. It's not. Yes, it's a per minute, so therefore it's kind of an efficiency, quote unquote, stat. But there's the PER and there's efficient basketball because PER takes into consideration everything. Right, rebounds, blocks, steals, missed field goals, all kinds of different stuff. All I'm saying is that Russell Westbrook is everywhere, and he's creating data every time he takes a step. He's collecting a stat, right? Where what I'm suggesting is that guys like Kawhi, in particular, they're still playing within a system, that, and they're they're as you say, they're not stat chasing. And so, yeah. and I just say the way Harden creates. Um, plus minus on the scoreboard is done so efficiently with simple passes and simple movements and simple, beautiful pick and rolls and lots and lots of free throws and a much higher percentage of shooting. It's, it's efficient movement and energetically and I guess on the whole team concept. So that's maybe what I meant by, by Harden. Just, yeah, well, this is the, the problem I guess I have Volvo. with statistics. And, and viewing statistics too closely is it seems to me that they come up with these stats and then they run with it for a season or two and then someone disproves the stat and you look at it and go, well, hang on, Russ Westbrook's the most efficient player by that stat. That can't be right. We'll, we'll, we'll turn to something else now. Or yeah. some player that's not very good, we'll, yeah. we don't assume is very good for me. The eye test, <clears throat> he'll turn up in, you know, Ennis Kander will turn up in some good defensive stats or something. You think, hang on, how can that be? And then they'll 
they'll keep re- revising the statistics. I think where analytics is going is more not from a fan perspective where we can look at it and make judgments about players. I still think from a fan's point of view, you're never going to get as good an experience as actually watching the games rather than just checking box scores and, and different stats and things. I think, but from a team point of view, where analytics is going is, and I read this about the Spurs in 2014, and they can break it down now to a point where they say, if we get Tony Parker in a pick and roll at that stage with Tim Duncan and we put Danny Green here over in the corner and we've got Kawhi up next to Tony Parker or we've got Kawhi in the post um, and we had, you know, let's say Boris Diaz out there as well and he's out in the three-point line. If we can get that sort of a match-ups, we know that we're going to... It's, it's 1.2 points per possession, right, which is at the higher end. Um, of what they can get for per possession. And they were breaking it down to that point of view just by looking at the video of the court um, and where players were situated on the court and knowing with this lineup, with these guys in this position, that's exact, that's the right matchups for us type of thing. I think that's, and, and obviously it goes even deeper than that, but I think that's the sort of thinking of where analytics is going rather than pouring sort of through these stats. Um, and looking at that so it is and I guess the point I'm trying to make is I think it is taking the eye test of the game and saying we can see what's happening here and really breaking it down minutely I mean obviously we're sitting there on the couch or I've got one eye on it while I'm trying to do some work or whatever and and making judgments these guys are breaking it down in minute detail but using the eye test as well as the statistics and actually melding them together to understand this is the best way to succeed for our team. Um, and I know you've done a bit of research on that yourself, um, well, about where analytics is going in the game. This is where the NBA geek and me gets super excited because you're bang on. I I think we are going to enter the next, also the next five to seven years, like this next generation is going to be, um, it's going to be fascinating because I couldn't. I couldn't believe it when I saw it, Daz. I, I, it feels like it's been around for longer, but, um, but Sports View, right? And Sports View data. And if people have, aren't familiar with Sports View, give it the Google. But Sports View basically is, um, they have a licensing agreement with the NBA where they have six cameras, above, um, sort of on the ceilings of the arena, over the arena, and what they can track, is everything about the movements of the players on the court. It's only been in place since 2013. So it's only been, this is what our third, yeah, third or fourth season with sports view data, which is all about how do you get back on defense? What the matchups work better or worse? What does spacing look like? And when you talk about spacing, like literally can get to go within inches or feet apart. Um, You know, is it the player or is it the system? How do defenders move? Who are the people who can draw in defenses? All kinds of crazy stuff where we haven't even started to scratch the surface with that yet. Um, the more so I go, that's kind of the super geek analytical game within the game of um, of looking at spacing and and patterns of data around around the movements of the players on the court, almost as if right, literally looking down from above as if they're chess pieces on the board when that, so there's, there's a whole realm I think of stuff 
that we haven't we haven't seen yet. There certainly aren't stats to describe it. We just call it pace and space. But we know behind the scenes, the guys have these databases that talk about probably literally within you know inches of where these people need to be on the floor. But I think there's going to be there's going to be a lot of stuff around that we haven't seen yet. The fascinating part for me is when that starts to get married to the synergy data. Now, Synergy is the is the group who was doing – they were doing all the NBA advanced scouting, and so they have all the video. This is actually the human – the the eye test stuff. So what Synergy got really great at was looking at how do we take scouting data, both college scouting and, and advanced scouting data, and create um, – and sort of tag, like sort of data tag the videos to match up what we think – from our scouting with what actually we see on the court. And so when I think these two realms are coming together, it's only been a couple of years since the sports view data has been available. That's what's, that's, what's going to get really geeky Daz is we can, you can genuinely marry, you know, back from the time now NBA teams aren't allowed to go and scout high school players yet, but you can bet they're getting closer and closer to being able to do that. But imagine all the data about players on, biometrics and medical and physical and familial and social and you know on motivation and behavioral factors from all their scouting through to the synergy data about you know draft express stuff and all their tendencies and the things they can do and match it up with your eyes then with all the human movement stuff on with the sports view uh, it's i guess on the one hand overwhelming and if i'm charles barkley of the world i go shut up who hey, shut up just everyone shut up who wins titles michael lebron kobe tim duncan dirk that's who wins titles so shut up all you nerds who didn't have sex in high school there's <laughs> something to that effect but uh, so 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 what so the, uh, on the analytics side we're, I, we're actually only scratching the surface, I think, Daz. That's, yeah, I, look, that's I what think I'm seeing. There's two points I'd make to that. The first is I don't think saying we're the best at analytics. No one's suggesting that's going to win you a title, right? I think the Spurs are still number one in analytics. I'm a bit biased there. But what I can guarantee you is every single year the Spurs are going to do as well as they possibly can, okay? So if, if their ceiling is to get the two seed and go out in the second round, then that was their ceiling. You know, it's very rare that we'll look back and say, gee, well, I think we left left a couple of things on the table. And obviously over the years, things haven't necessarily always gone in the Spurs' favour. But you always look back on the season and think, that's a team that achieved its fullest potential. I think analytics plays a part in that. But I think it's what you, you're... To go back to your point about synergy, I think you've got to look at the human instinct the human characteristics and still look at the scouting and the behavioural and the social. And that's one thing where I think Daryl Morey's admitted himself that the, 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 the Rockets fell down last season when they bring Ty Lawson in and analytically they looked at it and said, this guy's a perfect fit with Harden. We're going to play a fast. We're going to be able to play a faster pace. He's a great offensive player. And whether that didn't work on the court or whether it was more about the off-court well, stuff, that that didn't quite sort of fit. So I think you've still got to have, and I guess I was more going to your scouting points as well, where if you've still got to have that old school, we've got to 
you know, get the right type of people in here as well as the right type of basketball player. If that makes so sense. it does. I'm, I'm, and this is a perfect way to, to play with these ideas, talking about Houston in particular with Daryl Morey, because if, if any one of us were to start an NBA team at the beginning of a season and they said, you're charged with just winning the NBA title this season – the vast majority of people are going to choose LeBron first, right? It, we agree with me there. Does he, as a single human being, so I go great, done. I go that that conversation by itself says I don't need to go. Who's the human beings that most likely to deliver us a title? You start with the greatest talent. So Daryl Morey is the you know has comes from a school of thought is okay. How do we how do you beat supremely generationally talented players like LeBron? How do you beat him? Right? How do you do that? And so he's using analytics to help him figure out ways to do that. And even Daryl Morey, I guarantee Daryl Morey has his moments of weakness, moments of doubts to go, maybe none of this stuff matters until I get superstars, i.e. his protege, Sam Hinkie, different conversation. But so I go, Daryl Morey, my two data points where I don't think he's using analytics for everything. He signed Dwight Howard. He signed Josh fucking Smith. And I go, in what universe is signing 31 or sorry, then I guess 29 year old, you know, ball stopping back to the basket wants to be Superman Dwight Howard, who's on the same court as James Harden. I'm always pounding the table. I go, what? Seriously? Like how far into the woods did he have to go to find data that says that combination is going to work, first of all? And secondly, he signed Josh Smith. So I'm kind of with Charles Barkley here, you know, handing it back to Daryl Morey where I say even the analytics guys who are driven by it still have deep in their guts to go, oh, but is this actually going to work? Is this actually going to win us a basketball game? And so that's where I find what's going to be so fascinating about this next sort of era of basketball is literally, it feels like it's been so long because we've been talking about it for 700 straight days. But do you know Larry Bird? You know I me, mean? the most, Larry Bird was a good outside shooter, wasn't he? Right? Well, Larry Bird was pretty good at, pretty good no. shooting the ball. He. Well, they didn't shoot a lot of threes then. So, well, this is my this is my point. So, I'm, I'm getting to the point, right? Which was the the three point line came in in seventy nine eighty, and um, Larry Bird had his most three pointers in a season eighty six eighty seven, when he made ninety two. Yeah, he made one per game, Daz. <laughs> so I go. My my point is, Steph Curry has told the universe, oh my god. There is a way to beat LeBron James, and that's by being really good at three-point shot. Right, full stop. And that is boom. That's seen the number of three-pointers has exploded, like non, you know, non-linearly. It's it's you know hyperbolically exploded because suddenly, right, people like to copy the winners, and so that's what's going to be fascinating in the next few years as the number of three-pointers right has spiked to go ah. Oh, is this the only way to beat LeBron? Or the other way to beat LeBron is, let me check my notes. Find two Hall of Famers like Dirk Davitsky and, and Jason Kidd. Tick. 
Oh, find two Hall of Famers like right Tim Duncan and. Oh, he's in the. We had three. We had oh. Tim Duncan, TP, and Manu and Kawhi. We probably got four. Manu and T- Tony Parker Hall of Famers. Oh, Manu's Manu's definite. Manu's first first ballot. When you consider really? he won the European, because it's a basketball Hall of Fame, it's not an NBA Hall of Fame. Get your head out of America for a second. <laughs> and what? this guy won the Olympics, right? He won the World Championship. He won the Euro League. And he won an NBA title. Yeah, he won a few NBA titles, didn't he? He won yeah. four. So, yeah. No, look, in all seriousness, that's, that's why uh, Tony Parker, but, you could maybe make an argument one way or the so, other. I would have Tony Parker there. So, have, so, okay, so whether he makes Hall of Fame or not, that he's not Jason Kidd, right? He's not Jason Kidd and, and Dirk. Man is a great player, but he's not. He's not Jason and Dirk. No, he certainly so, wasn't at that stage. That, that, that's all I'm So I'm saying, how do you beat the singular greatest universal generational talent? You know, we've had Michael for, for 10 years, and he won six of them. we got LeBron, who's just going to keep going to finals after finals. It's like, how do you beat him? And either find yourself Hall of Famers or find yourself um, ridiculous um, three-point shooters to put the math in your favor. And And we're only just now starting to see teams – I guess my point about Larry Bird is it takes a while. It takes a while for the skill sets to be developed. So they put the NBA three-point line in, and um, it took a while because everyone in the NBA was ISO and um, fantastic at shooting mid-range jumpers and you know brilliant um, one-on-one games like Alex English and Adrian Dantley and Bernard King and all these names, right? Moses Malone and Dr. J., they weren't shooting three-pointers. That one crazy dude, World Be Free, was shooting three-pointers or downtown Freddie Browns. Like, they had these – the three-point shooters were the freaks. Like, yeah. look at these crazy dudes with the crazy shots from, you know, from 25 feet away. So I guess what I, I think is what, – what's going to fascinate me is that num- part one, we've got all kinds of crazy new data with sports view and synergy, what's going to come from that. And then part two is it's only been a couple years since Steph proved – that you can beat LeBron um, by shooting 45% from three-point land, which is crazy. Um, and so I guess to start looking at then what are the skill sets of the future, our three-point shooters, and then people who now with the, with the way defenses are oriented, people who can play defense and switch and who can defend multiple positions, the Kawhi Leonard's, the Draymond Green's, the Giannis's, the people like that who can do, you know, because all the PNR and all the switching and the, and the pace and space, you cannot just be a one-on-one defender anymore, or you get you get called Jabari Parker, right? Yeah. And and so that for me is what's going to be fascinating is how how the NCAA's and how the draft, the international players are going to produce players of these skill sets. So seeing well, I think what the lo- other thing you're, you're looking at, and the teams are trying to replicate something in Golden State that cannot be replicated. And I think you've got to be careful that you're not. that's not what you're trying to do because you've got a once-in-a-generational or once-in-a-generation shooter in Steph Curry. You've got a guy that Clay Thompson is probably just a smidge below him in terms of his ability to shoot. They've now added Kevin Durant to that. So they've now got superstars in that lineup. And what interests me at the moment is... We all acknowledge, well, I certainly acknowledge the Spurs 
if if not the best, one of the best analytical teams. And they're actually going away from the pace and space type of game. They're shooting more long twos than anyone in the league. Now, that that may very well be because Pop said, you know what, the best way to beat the Golden State is to play that style and try and slow the game down, shoot more long twos, play through the pace, a bit more one-on-one with Kawhi. But they also defend the three-point shot better than any other team in the league. Now, that may be a matter of having Kawhi's the greatest perimeter defender in the league. They've also got Danny Green, who's very good in that sense. But they've all, I'll be interested to see if any team sort of try and follow their model as well and look at what they're doing and say there is still a place in the game. I mean, if David Lee wasn't on the Spurs this year, he'd be out of the league because I don't think any other team could play him at the moment and put him in the system. Dwayne Dedman was on Orlando last year, averaged 10 minutes a game, put up no numbers. He's not putting up massive numbers this year, but he's starting for the Spurs, playing well. Um, Pau Gasol was probably out of the league if he didn't go to the Spurs. So there's something they're doing, and it's like, are you going? And I think what the Spurs are doing is maybe more replicable than what Golden State's doing, because Golden State's doing it with unbelievable shooters and unbelievable talent that we've never seen the likes of. I've never seen a shooter like Steph Curry before. Um, whereas the Spurs are doing it with guys that have been around the league journeyman okay it's taken them a long time to build that up but to me that's more what i would be aiming at rather than going oh go and stay the fantastic and they've beaten lebron with this crazy shooting style but you've got to put players around them that can do that and it's very difficult i mean houston are doing it but they've got a fantastic player in james harden as well um and yet and you look at and, and one of the things that I look at when I say that is you look at Sacramento now, and they Sacramento are an absolute basket case, but they walk in, say, Mike Malone, we've been told that if we play this pace and space era, pace and space basketball, we're going to win an extra five games. Analytics tells us that we're going to sack Mike Malone, we're going to go in a different direction. Boogie Cousins, <laughs> the only productive period of Boogie Cousins' entire career, and they were looking really good at the start of that season. Um and, and then Mike Malone's and the, and the whole franchise is, has been an absolute heap since. So I think you've got to be careful about which direction you go in. I'm going to be fascinated, like you, to see which direction it goes in um, from here. And do teams keep going down the path of these the three-point shooting and the pace and space? Or do we, get, do we move back to um, some more sort of old school basketball it's a bit more post up a bit more long twos or those and, and Zach Lowe's made this point do we move to an era where there's a stretch five out there and height wins again and you've got those Joel B types and who knows what Thon Maker's going to become that can shoot with range but can also play close to the basket and play both of those styles of games so well you've that's it that's what I think Steve wrongly They've wrongly, have they wrongly, or has it actually got it right? That you just keep hearing the stupid unicorn not, thing, <laughs> yeah, right? I can't stand the unicorn. It's just I fucking hate that. Right? Remember my three classes of MVP. Class number one is freakishly brilliant offensive players, Harden and Curry. Class number two, freakishly brilliant defensers, defensive defensive players like Gobert and Draymond and Giannis. Class number three, those who've done both. LeBron James has developed 
and he's worked really fucking hard to develop a three-point shot. Don't think that's because Steph Curry isn't in existence. There's no way LeBron's shooting threes like this if Steph Curry doesn't beat them two years ago. He's just so he's so ridiculously talented. He can decide he's going to shoot 38% this year, and he does, right, which is well above league average. So I go, you've hit the nail on the head where I go, that's where I think this next can you find people who can both prevent offense, right, defend players, prevent three-pointers, and do the switching defense and be offensive forces themselves, like a Giannis in this next generation, like Carl uh, Anthony Towns is never going to play defense. Przingis, can he play defense? I go, Giannis is maybe the poster child for if he develops a three-point shot. And he's a long ways away from it. But if he does, he becomes your next LeBron, where he's so good defensively and he can handle the ball. And if he develops a 36% three-point shot, that's your ultimate, that's your ultimate weapon in the, in the NBA. Now, how you find them? Very, very difficult to find them. And so your point about the Spurs is the chess match. There's only 30 teams. Most of them actually want to win basketball games. Most. Not all, but most. <laughs> and so you look at – I love your example of the of Sacramento. When you said that, I thought of two other franchises who've been trying to figure this out. Indiana jumps to mind where Larry Bird suddenly jumps on his, uh, on his soapbox and says, oh, pace and space. Pace and space, space and space, fire Vogel. Well, guess what you just did to your superstar, Paul George, who's not a pace and space player. Mm. He is an ISO defensive warrior sort of player. I go, what have you done? Well, if you just, if you just cut off your nose to spite your face, basically, and then, oh, they're an example for everything bad, but the Lakers, right? Who've done the. Byron Byron Scott <laughs> said he doesn't believe in the three pointer. He said this. I go, wait, Byron, you don't say that out loud. Shh, don't say that. Are you are you that stupid? Well, he was that stupid actually. That's so I go, those, yeah. So um, the point was, how do you beat LeBron and beat the super super superstars, the elite of the elite? Be fantastic at three point shooting, and you're you're bang on. How the hell? Are you going to rip, replicate what Golden State's doing? Well, Cleveland and Houston are giving it a crack with their, their amount of three-pointers. The other way is that's where Pop's probably ahead of the curve. He's saying, you know what? If all the defenses are trying to prevent corner threes and layups, that by definition means they're not defending the area that's you know, between you know 16 and 20 feet from the basket. Hmm. And it so happens that the San Antonio Spurs have two players who are fucking brilliant at that, Kawhi Leonard and LMA, who love nothing more to rise up because they're tall and have perfect mechanics, and can, they can get off 15 footers almost at will. Same thing with Powell. I don't know. I don't know what Powell's shot chart looks like, but Powell's got that silky little, almost like he's shooting a free throw from 18 feet. So that's what that's what I love about where the NBA is going. You've got supreme, supreme LeBron. You've got supreme once in a lifetime talent in Curry showing us a way to play. You've now got these freakish athletes like Giannis and Perzingis and Carl Anthony Towns and, and Anthony Davis who give us glimpses of what the next seven-foot D 
do everything defense offense you know players can be like and and then we've got all this data coming in so um uh, every team has their is going to have to answer some fascinating questions about how do we compete in this landscape yeah and i think zach Lowe actually made the point when when the spurs signed aldridge everyone including me thought they're going to turn this guy into a three-point shooter and he's just going to be another guy that's going to space the floor and they're going to be putting him in the corner he's going to be hitting them through it's been the opposite they've actually said to him we want you to pound the ball down low take those mid-range twos that are apparently the worst shot in basketball and here's the spurs turning it all on their, on its head and we're the second best where i say like that like i'm on the team but the spurs are the second best team in the nba this season and they're not playing this pace and space and they won a title really playing pace and space against the Heat but that was the way to beat the Heat they're not they're trying to do two things be as good as they can obviously within the framework of the regular season but their overall goal is we want to beat Golden State and we think this is the way to beat Golden State Um, and you see other teams trying to replicate Golden State I don't think they're going to get there I don't think the Spurs have the talent necessarily to do it, but I'll be interested to see if other teams, particularly if they keep this core of Golden State together, if other teams look at what the Spurs are doing and say, you know what, maybe that's the way um, that we need to go from here rather than trying to beat them in just an out-and-out shootout. And that's obviously the direction that Houston are going in um, and certainly the direction that the Cavs are going in as well. Um, so that's, I think, the fascinating chess match within the NBA at the moment is what direction the team's going. I think, and to my mind, too many are going towards the the three-point shooting. We've got to try and beat them with three-point shooting. I think the Utah model, the Spurs model, may very well be more effective at beating um, Golden State than what those models will be. My favourite stat from this year, it's not a stat because I just I kind of made it up, <laughs> is, well, it's not fake, but um, is Brooke Lopez. Brooke Lopez, in eight seasons, took how many three-pointers before this year? He took 31. 31 in eight seasons. Do you know how many he's taken this year? 316. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He's I, literally... I, was, I would have guessed the ran the his, 300, mate. His annual weird. totals of three points attempted, two... Two, one, zero, one, one, and ten. He made his first three pointer in his sixth year in the league. <laughs> That's a that is a fact. You could look that shit up. So I go, yep. I, I wonder what Brooklyn's strategy is, huh? But he's hitting thirty five percent, which is actually below league average. But the point is, yeah, he's he's given them some. Well, they've won 11 games, so I'm going to stop this conversation about Brooklyn's Brooklyn strategy. But um, that raises for me the an aspect which is perhaps the, beyond the realm of my brain is thinking about analytics, not just how do you win basketball games, which is fascinating in and of itself, but what are the analytics around team philosophy and roster construction? So what data are teams now using um, to say, okay, LeBron James is where he's at. 
Steph Curry and all this team of MVPs is where they at. What is our, what does the data tell us about the likelihood of building a championship caliber team through what combinations of, uh, what style of play do we need to play? What combinations of veterans do we need to have? What skill sets do we need to combine over what sort of time frames? How fast do we believe it's realistic to be able to build a franchise um, uh, that can compete for conference finals and NBA finals? That for me is, again, probably the, the stuff that only comes to light in the offseason when you start to hear stories about, you know, Daryl Moore in Houston's quite famous for, you know, the James Harden trade and how he can chronicle the both some of the accidents, the pieces of luck, and just the mindset that he had to have constantly to keep your franchise in a position with the salary cap, style of play, and with assets on your team and the talent to be ready for when someone they think is a superstar is available to be acquired. So I go, that's what's going that's the other interesting angle, which is how are these teams actually going to have an identity? And think about actually building teams. Well, I think the Nets are actually a fascinating team to talk about from that point of view because they need to be at the forefront of these analytical discussions because they're not building a team through getting a superstar in the draft. If they're gonna, if that, if that's going to be the the route they're out, they're going to take. They're going to have to wait two years before they're even in a position to draft high, and then who knows how many years from there. So they're already having to think outside the box, and I think. The interesting thing is, can you anticipate where the league is going to go? And is it going to go in the area of the stretch five and these and, and just surround the floor with shooters in the ultimate pace and space type game? Or is this just a bit of an aberration and are we going to go back? And I don't think we'll ever go back fully to the way it was, you know, in, in the the, the, the 80s and 90s when the, the three-point shot just wasn't used as heavily, certainly in the 80s um, in the NBA. But I think that's where you're going to look at the side, a team like the Nets and say, can they anticipate what, where the, the league is going to go and get there first by drafting these guys in the 20s? And well, like I, my, for me, it, always come, it does come down to money in a way. Where the um, the fourteen fifteen finals, the one where the Dubs beat the Cavs, was the most watched final since Michael Jordan retired, right? Since Jordan beat the Jazz for the last time, and what that tells me is that this, and my also my my eyes tell me this year, and our MVP race tells us this year. There's all these signals pointing to this is beautiful entertaining, fascinating basketball, and probably the talent pool for people who are great at these things is probably a much deeper talent pool than finding the next LeBron, the next Kobe, or the next Michael Jordan. Mm. And so that's why I think the, the quality of play is really elevated. And the I can, my, what I'm seeing is probably – this is probably going to continue for a while yeah. because the money is up. Viewership is up. Quality of play is up. And oh, I, I had some fascinating stuff in my, in my, when I geeked out Daz. Um, well, I thought, well, 
okay, we hear about pace and space, but is it just is it turnover prone and high usage and is it just loose and sloppy and long outlet passes and it all sounds just kind of awful ball, but um, effective field goal percentage is up, but that's not uh, that's not a surprise because we're taking more more three pointers. But did you know this surprised me? Turnover percentage is way down, and pace is up. So think about those three things: field goal, effective field goal percentage is up, turnover percentage is way down, and pace is up. So we're playing faster making more shots and actually turning the ball over less. Yeah, but I'd like to dig a bit deeper into those stats and see are they passing the ball as much um, or is there... I mean, there's a lot of just pulling up for threes um, without a pass being thrown um, in a lot of these games too. So I'd like to dig a bit deeper on that stat because I I don't don't think you can necessarily say just because pace is up, turnovers will be up. It it, it is at our level of play. But it's, it, it, when you get into the high level of play, it, it's not not that simple. If you're telling me pace is up and they're passing the ball the same amount every possession as they were back in the 80s and 90s, then I'm like, okay, that's impressive. But I, I think you'll find there's not as many passes being flung around. Do you be, do you believe that the MVP race is one of the best races you've seen in a long time? Uh, d- definitely. I can't remember. Maybe the, the, the Jordan Barkley... Robinson was in. I think the Admiral was in that one. Um, I'm missing. I'm, I'm, I, there's another player that was in the conversation. I think Carl Malone might have been in the conversation that year um, in '92, '93. Is the last time I can remember a, a, a one this good. Yeah, that's what I mean. That, so, and those are those tend to be on contending teams. So I go. We've got KG was healthy. We have five absolute legitimate conversations about MVP. Um, viewership of basketball is up. So people like to watch what's happening. And I go, so my only point about that was, and it's you're, it's a fair fair pushback, but I'm saying if I'm pulling into analytics to augment my brain or my sort of augment what I'm seeing, is I was shocked that, because um, it would stand to reason, pace means number of possessions. And the more possessions, you would presume that there would be more turnovers, but that actually has decreased. So, Okay, maybe people are hogging the ball more, but I was expecting that number to be quite elevated. I actually thought it was going to be higher, considering the type of play we see from, you know, from Harden, Westbrook, and players like that, and the Schroeders and Alfred Paytons. It feels like they're they're having five or six turnovers a game. So I actually thought that number was going to be a lot higher. It's actually quite low. So I guess all I'm saying is that basketball feels hyper competitive. We've got teams who are finding ways to compete with, you know, um, with LeBron in their fascinating ways, the Steph Curry way, bombardi with threes, the Houston way, bombardi with threes and not play any defense, and the, um, I guess, the San Antonio way, which is the San Antonio way and will never be different <laughs> and always be effective with the greatest coach ever. So um, that's all. I guess what I'm saying, the role analytics played for me when I saw that stats is the, num- the analytics – the advanced stats over NBA averages are actually also reinforcing what I'm seeing on the court. That's, that's I guess, all I was saying. Yeah. Oh, look, I think that certainly we'll, we'll touch on this again at, at some point if there is a lull in the basketball. So I think we could, we could talk about this all night. The thing I would say quickly about the Spurs is they were shooting, I think, the most series or certainly one of the most teams shooting threes a couple of seasons ago when they won the title. And it is fascinating that they've gone away from that. Now, whether that's just a 
a facet of the fact that they got LaMarcus Aldridge and they thought we need to change to fit his, him being on our roster and they missed out on other players they might have gone after in free agency that could have continued that style of basketball I'm not sure that would be an internal discussion that they would have had to have um, but the final point I wanted to make about this is if we went and made a movie about and, and I think this would be a much better movie than what Moneyball was in basketball I'd love to see a movie about that Houston Rockets team from 07-08 that went on the 22 game win streak because that was really the that was when everyone stood up and took notice of Daryl Morey and the analytics side of the game I think because to put together that roster and then you have McGrady go down you have Yao Ming go down and everyone thinks this is over and then they reel off uh, the fourth longest win streak in NBA history, and I think at the time it was what was it, what, the second longest win streak in NBA history of 22 games with the likes of Shane Battier, uh, Aaron Brooks, Carl Landry. I'm just looking at the the roster now: the Kemi Mutombo, Lewis Scola. Like it was not a, a, a number of household names uh, in that squad, and they won 50 games again, made the playoffs. But that to me was. Um, when you saw what they did and you saw the, the thought that went behind putting that roster together um, and they were still able to be successful despite losing some star players. I think that's when that people stood up and took notice of, um, of what Daryl Morey did and the importance of analytics in the game. I mean, sure, sure, internally, I'm sure, within the NBA, they were already understanding it, but I think externally people stood up and took notice or sat up and took notice of the analytics side of the game when that win streak happened. Would you agree with that? Well, I would because the kind of cover boy for analytics has been Shane Battier, hasn't it? Right, he's just the guy you want to have on your team. Oh. He's not the best shooter, and he's not the fastest, and he's not the tallest. He's not the best rebounder. So he doesn't average the most points per game. He doesn't hit the traditional stats, but he's the guy that seems to show up on on every team and, I guess, plus-minus, right? If he's on the court, we're winning. If yeah, he's well, not, we're, the, we're as not. As I said, I watched the Spurs this morning, the Spurs-Memphis, one of the games out of that series, and he played for Memphis in that series. He beat the Spurs twice with Memphis, and then, of course, <clears> with the Heat, he hit seven of eight from three in game seven of the 2013 finals. Yeah, that's it. So that's my my um, my Milwaukee book, I guess, an analytics sort of bring it all together is can, if Giannis can develop a sort of a, an outside game, he, he has the chance to be, you know, I guess Shane Battier on both ends of the court, a like sort of Shane Battier, but better. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, I, I agree. I'd for actually hadn't thought about that. 07, 08 team for a long time, but um, was Maury even, that was Maury's first or second year, wasn't it? Yeah, Stan Van Gundy was, was coach, and Maury was uh, Maury just started there. Um, and no, was, that was that was Adelman. Oh, was Adel- It was Adelman too. That's right. You, you're it was. Right. Yeah. Am I? Is that? We should probably look that up. <laughs> I <laughs> thought it was Rick Adelman. Do you? Okay, but I thought it was oh seven. It was. No, you're 100 right. It was Rick Adelman. Yeah. It yeah. was Rick Adelman, but um, yeah, Maury was there at the time um, and he obviously had the analytics background and people sort of I guess were questioning is this guy the right guy um, to have this to have this team and that's when they went on the win streak and um, yeah. I think Van Gundy came in after or before that he came after didn't he after I think yeah yeah he was at the tail end but 
Anyway, look, we might leave it there for tonight. We're going to try and have another one um, during this week. I do want to talk about Portland and Denver at the moment, and I think that trade has become very, very fascinating. Um, Nurkic and um, for Mason Plumley and, and the first-round draft pick. So I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about Andrew Bogut as well. So hopefully we get time later on in the week to have that. But thanks for your time tonight, Darren. Nice one, Dows. That was fun. Yeah, that's good. That one's one for the NBA geeks out there like like yourself and, and me. <laughs> just me. <laughs> yeah, just you. <laughs> All right, thanks, Darren. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye.